Good morning, World of Life. It is amazing to see you all. I trust those that have been away have had a great break like we had. We had um, a couple of weeks in the mountains in South Africa. If you've never experienced that, it is definitely worth experiencing. And uh, good to rest and hang with the family. We've got to see Matt again, who's my eldest son, who's um, back in South Africa doing his schooling. And we had the privilege of watching him have his appendix taken out while we were there. Isn't the time of the Lord amazing? He was, uh, he was complaining about pain in his stomach, and I said, just suck it up. Stop being a drama queen. Give it two more days. I'm sure it will be fine. And his mother didn't listen to me and took him to the doctor. And the doctor agreed with his mother, and the surgeon agreed with the doctor. Anyway, it turned out he lost his appendix at the end of all that, and Dad was wrong. Thank goodness we have mothers and fathers, hey, and not just fathers. So there's a shout-out to all the mothers out there with your compassion. Keep going. And um, I have the privilege today of preaching. I was um, in church a couple of weeks ago in South Africa listening to uh, another man preach, and God dropped something in my heart, um, which is the title of this, um, Following Jesus. I, that song that we sang today is what was going through my head. I have decided to follow Jesus. And uh, this preach has got, um, it's primarily talking about our journey with Christ from the cross. And what happens when somebody preaches something about what it means to live out the Christian life, we sometimes confuse it with what it means to come to Christ. And so we think, well, are we saved by grace or not? And we, we are absolutely saved by grace. But as Kayla uh, read that word today, he has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And the living of this Christian life, of this passionate, extravagant, holy, fruitful life, is for me the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And they in no way diminish the work he's already done or the work that he continues to do in us. And so I'm going to start today by reading from Luke chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles here, which everybody does because you've got, you've got a smartphone or an iPad or the new Samsung 9. Anybody queue last night for the new Samsung? No one, eh? If it had been an iPhone, they would have been queuing. I'm just saying. Anyway, you're going to open your Samsung and to Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62, I'm going to read. It says, As they were going along, this is Jesus and the disciples, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is actually a, a story that Luke and the other gospel writers record about an encounter with Jesus. And uh, as you'll see, there's, as we see in this passage, there's three different people that are interacting, three different situations. That it, it's not entirely clear at first reading exactly what's going on here. We know that some are making this proclamation that they will follow him, and that Jesus seems to counter it with the things that he says. And uh, it's, actually a, uh, it's actually there to teach us about commitment and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought of, as, as I was reading this, I thought about a cartoon that I'd seen some time back about um, an advertisement for church light. Now we have Coke, and then we have Coke light, and now there's a thing called church light. And... Uh, Church Light is a church where we have 24% fewer commitments. The home of the 7.5% tithe, um, although from what I've read, it should actually be the home of the 2% tithe. 15-minute sermons, you ain't getting that today, I'm telling you. The 45-minute worship service, we have only eight commandments, your choice. You can skip whichever two you don't want to. We use just three spiritual laws, everything you've wanted in a church, and less. And uh, the problem is with this cartoon is that there's more truth to this fiction than there ought to be. Many churches around the world today are lowering the commitment levels just to attract people into the church. They're afraid that if they preach against sin, that people are going to be offended and not come. So they, they speak about living the best life you can and speak about sin in only very general terms. They don't want to deal with controversial doctrinal issues, the things that are relevant in our culture, but touchy and sensitive, so they stay away from those completely. They don't want to be labeled as intolerant or judgmental. And they wouldn't dream in these churches of practicing church discipline. If someone's living an, uh, a sinful life, they wouldn't dare confront them. 
And the focus in the church is about being upbeat and making sure that everybody feels loved unconditionally and you can never do anything wrong. The problem with this is that it results in millions of churchgoers who call themselves Christians but aren't fully committed to Jesus Christ and the gospel. In Acts 11 verse 26, it says uh, we read about the church in Antioch. And uh, if you know the story, um, revival had broken out there. The, uh, the apostle sent Barnabas to go up and see what was going on. And he says that, it, that he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And there were many wonderful things that were taking place in the church community as, as they gathered. And in verse 26 it says, and it was here that they were called Christians for the first time. And it was a, it was a name that applied to us as followers of Christ. If, if uh, it described somebody who was a believer and that was walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that you might be old enough, I am, to be able to remember when... Um, there was a little, I don't know if it was the same time all around the world, but I know in South Africa, it was when I was a young teenager, we, people started using the label born-again Christian to describe a particular group of Christians. So there was Christians, but then they started to say, well, are you a born-again Christian? And I remember many people were like, like super offended about it. No, what do you mean born-again Christian? And normally the people that were offended were the people that were actually nominal Christians. Born-again was something, it's not a new word. I mean, it comes from John chapter 3 when Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And all it was trying to do was, was distinguish between Christian, which had become a label. If you were from the West and you had some sort of vague idea that there was a God, then you were a Christian. That's what you were. And I think that's one of the mistakes that takes place here in, our, in this very nation. Many, um, many of, the, of the locals here, they'll meet somebody from the West and they'll just assume that this person is a Christian. And so this label was put on born-again Christian to describe somebody that had a different level of commitment. I don't know if you guys have heard of George Barner before. Any of you heard of him? He does these surveys of the church, primarily in the U.S., but around the world. And he actually used this term, and he described it like this. He says, born-again Christians, they answer affirmative to these questions. I've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in my life today. And I believe that when I die, I'll go to heaven because I've confessed, confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now, 38% of Americans would answer yes to those two questions and therefore would fall into this category of born-again believer. But George Barner and others have gone on to um, apply another term because um, it, this, there were too many whose in their beliefs and in their behaviors were not demonstrating that they were living a fully um, devoted Christian life. And so the term evangelical was coined. And uh, the, there were seven questions, and these are them, that George Bonner would ask for somebody that, uh, for them to be qualified as a, or to fall into this category of evangelical. So you didn't get to tick on the survey, I'm a born-again Christian or I'm an evangelical. You answered these questions, and if you said yes to them, then you fell into that category. My faith is very important in my life today. It's not something in the past. It's not something I, I hope to pursue in the future. It's very important to my life today. I, have a, I believe I have a personal responsibility to share my faith with non-Christians. I believe Satan exists. I believe eternal salvation is possible only through grace and not works. I believe Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. I believe the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. I believe God is the all-knowing all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. And when this grid was applied, only 8% of those in America um, were classed as evangelicals. And even today, within the evangelical church and those that would call themselves evangelical, there are some whose lifestyles in what they believe in and what they practice are separating them from what the scriptures have historically taught. And so many that come from evangelical churches that are spokesmen for the evangelical church are saying things like today that it is absolutely fine for a person to be in a monogamous homosexual relationship and even for those relationships to be um, brought together within the church, which is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And so again, even this um, label is being diluted. And so some have begun to use the phrase Christ follower. And the bottom line is that too many people that profess Christianity don't know the basic teachings of Christianity and don't act any differently because of the encounter with God. It's like 
like I've, I've got my ticket to heaven, which is what the born-again believer has. I, I believe in Jesus. I believe I'm going to heaven because I've confessed my sins. My ticket's in my pocket, and now I'm going to carry on living my life the way that I lived it before. And the statistics show, play this out. Looking at just three things, and I mean, obviously, all of these are American because they're the guys that do the surveys. If they did the surveys in India, I would use the Indian statistics for, for, um, for Christians. But there was a 2001 poll that Barna did around divorce, and he found that the, the rate of divorce for born-again Christians, for born-again believers, and for the entire population was almost exactly the same, at 33 and 34%. And tragically, 90% of those that were born again that got divorced were, were divorced after they'd come to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So my objective this morning is not to make you feel bad about the fact if you have been divorced that you are divorced. And um, I don't, I don't, maybe I do know, but everybody else doesn't know the circumstances that you went through and there are some legitimate situations where people do go through divorce. But divorce should not be reflecting in the same quantities in the church as it does outside of the church. The second area is in giving. In 2002, in the survey they did, they found that only 6% of born-again believers tithed. 6%. That means 94%. That's more than 9 out of 10 are not tithing. And of the evangelicals, um, this number was hardly any better at, at 9%. And how's this? John and Sylvia, um, whatever their name is, Ronsvelt, um, did a survey, and they found that if the Americans church just, if everyone that was part of America just, just tithe, the tithe income would be $143 billion per year. And the United Nations has said that if they could have just 70 to 80 more billion dollars per year, they could provide health, basic health care and basic education for all the poor in the world. The church would be able to deal with that and still have 60 to 70 billion left over to fund the gospel going out into the nations of the earth. And just from tithing in just the church in one nation, albeit the, the, the wealthiest nation in the world. The last one is purity, and, and there's so many areas we could go look here where the church falls short so often. But um, I don't know if you guys have heard of that program in the past called True Love Waits. And what it was, it came out, I think, out of the Southern Baptists, and they, they, what they tried to do was cre- create a, a momentum around abs- abstinence, which is... Um, it's, a, it's a strange word these days. It means that you don't have sex before you're married, which actually is the norm for the Christians. I, you all know that, eh? Norm for Christians is not to have sex except within marriage. And uh, they, from 1993, when they rolled this out, 2.4 million young people, Christians, signed a pledge that they would abstain from sex before marriage. And in 2004, it was a study conducted by um, Columbia University and Yale University tracked 12,000 of these teenagers that had signed this pledge over seven years, and 88% of them, nearly 90% of those, not your general population, Christians who had signed the pledge had uh, admitted that they had engaged in premarital sex or, uh, uh, before marriage. And they found, sadly, that the, the rate of sexually transmitted diseases was as great amongst those believers that had signed the pledge as it was amongst the rest of the population as well. The problem is, you see, that the message in the church, in the West especially, but I think in other areas as well, is that following Jesus requires less commitment than joining your local sports club. And, uh, and if we look at the three areas that I've spoken about, and there are many others, the problem is that too many that call themselves Christians are not following in the footsteps of Jesus. But when we read that passage in Luke chapter 9, we see something completely different. The, the standard is up here. Somebody was telling me yesterday, Rob, that you set the standard too high. I was thinking to myself, that's a much better accusation than saying you set the standard too low or your bar is too low. And uh, I don't think Jesus lowers his bar at all. This is what he says it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole of that chapter 9 is profoundly challenging. In that chapter, Jesus twice tells his disciples, reveals to them that he is going to face rejection and death soon in verses 22 and 44. In verse 51, Luke says that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And like, I'm going, I'm going to Jerusalem, even though the cross and death wait for me there. And in verse 23, he taught his disciples that the most basic uh, level, the fundamental level of following Jesus Christ implies self-denial and that we daily pick up our cross. William Hendrickson, a theologian, 
points out that Christ's firm determination to go to Jerusalem, there to die for all those who have placed their trust in him, is here contrasted with the weak and conditional commitment of three would-be followers. It is as if Jesus were saying, my own determination to accomplish this task assigned to me, whatever the cost, must be an example to all my followers. And in this context, we encounter two men who said to Jesus, I'll follow you, and one that Jesus invites to follow him. And as we look at these three, and I call them wannabe followers, they, uh, we, we see a few things. Number one is you might notice that we don't see the response of any of them. We don't actually see when, when Jesus says to the first one, um, I've got nowhere to lay my head. We don't know whether he actually says, don't worry about it, I'm with you. Or if he said, oh, I'll get back to you on the following thing after that. You know? And I think uh, my sense as we read through this is that they probably didn't is that they said, I'll follow you. And actually, Jesus said, but what about this? And they said, look, I'm not going to follow you then. And uh, maybe the reason why Luke doesn't record the response is because he wants it to challenge our hearts. He wants the question to be addressed to us. And uh, it's a question that I'm asking you this morning, even as I've been asking myself this question. Am I truly following Christ? Or am I going through the motions? Am I a wannabe follower? And so we're going to look at these three different types of followers. The first is the man who declares allegiance but doesn't count the cost. We'll read those two verses again. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you, what did he say? Wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And there's nothing wrong with that profession. In fact, if somebody came up and said, Rob, I'm, I'm with you, I'll follow you wherever you go, I would say to myself, well, that's, that's an amazing um, commitment to make and, and I would if I would take them at their word then that would be I'd be patting them on their back and saying let's go. The problem is Jesus doesn't just take people at their word, does he? He actually looks into their hearts. We can say we say so many things. It's like that movie Jerry Maguire. Do you remember that movie? With um, Tom Cruise and Cooper Gooding Jr. Eh? And uh, in the movie like this there's promises made all the time and Tom Cruise is his agent and he phones Cooper Gooding Jr. and he says he tells him, I've got this deal lined up. And he says to him, I don't care about the deal, buddy. Remember what he says? Show me the money. Show me the money. And he makes him shout on the phone, show me the money like this. And it's like Jesus saying, I, I don't want your talk. I want your action. I want your heart completely for me. And it was something that Jesus saw. There was, there was a catch in this man's heart. And he says to him, I, I don't have security for you. And maybe this man thought, well, I'm going to follow this amazing teacher um, he's going to bring wisdom to me, and, and maybe he's going to give me a platform. There's going to be a sense of profile for me, and, I, and I'll be secure with them. Teachers in those days often had um, lots of uh, money that was given to them so they could live relatively well. And Jesus showed that he was not tied to earthly things and not tied especially to things that material. He, doesn't, he was the creator of the fox. He's the creator of the bird, and he doesn't even have the luxury of a hole to sleep in, he's saying. And uh, some commentators say that this statement, he had nowhere to lay his head, spoke about ownership. He didn't own his own home. He didn't have a place that he could go back to and, and like, this is where I get to put my head down. And for so many of us, the idea of owning our home seems to be the, the minimum sort of security that we can maybe end up with. Hey, like, like I'm going to pay off my home. We come to Dubai maybe with a very intent that I'm going to make enough money to send back to wherever our home nation is or Maybe your home nation is a bit of a mess. I'm going to buy it somewhere else so that it can be secure and it provides us with that sense of security. But Jesus is calling us to live with a, a different sense of order within our lives. William Barclay, one of my favorite um, theologians and, and commentators, says this. To the first man, his advice was, before you follow me, count the cost. No one could ever claim to have been induced to follow Jesus under false pretenses. Jesus has paid us the compliment of pitching his demands so high that they cannot be higher. It may well be that we have gone, we've, uh, sorry, it may well be that we have done great hurt to the church by letting people think that church membership need not make very much difference. We ought to tell them that it should make all the difference in the world. We might have fewer people, but those that we had would be really pledged to Jesus Christ. Jesus was simply pointing out what he had taught in verse 3 to verse 23, that this is not a life of self-indulgence, but a life of self-denial that he's called us to. 
I, um, I remember I was telling my mom on the phone some time back, and she said um, her and my father had found a, a, a new church that they were looking at and were visiting, and they'd been going for a while now, and, and they were really enjoying it. She said, and they want us to come into membership. I said, Mom, that's great. Why don't you do that? She said, well, the problem is their membership class is 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. So I said, Mom, Jesus died on the cross with you, but I can un- for you, but I suppose getting up at 7 o'clock is too big a price to pay. My mom goes, because she has to hold the phone away, she goes, Rob says Jesus died on the cross. We should go to the 7 o'clock membership class. <laughs> and friends, yes, you should go to the 7 o'clock membership class. And, and yes, you should be inconvenienced. And, and yes, when it's hard, you should continue to do it because Jesus promises us that it will be hard. And then one of the, the guys that I'm enjoying listening to, and he's not a believer, and so we, I don't know where he will end up, but he's, um, his name is Jordan Peterson. And he says, well, he says, one of the problems with the West is we're not pessimistic enough. We're not pessimistic. We don't realize how hard it actually is. So we expect it's going to be like this. When you get married, you think you've married Ken. You know Ken and Barbie? But it's not. He's not Ken. His body will not stay that way for the rest of his life. Ken's plastic hair will stay on his head. For many men, the hair will fade out. Hey, Sajid. It just disappears. The stomach will grow. He's not going to remain that way. Our expectation is up here of how easy and how good it will be. This life, Jesus tells us, is going to have trouble and it's going to be hard. And he's not talking about if you sin and if you fall into error. He's talking about for the ordinary person that's following him, it's going to be tough. And Jesus doesn't bring us into this relationship with him and this journey with him under false pretenses. He doesn't sell us a ticket saying to us what it's going to be like this. You know, like when you go sign up for something and they, they make these promises of what it's going to be like. Like, you know, you're going to be on this cruise ship um, and, um, and it's going to be amazing. You're going to have three meals a day, bread and water. And... Um, and then you arrive there, and it's nothing like what you expected, and you feel let down. From the beginning, Jesus promises you, and, and it's clear with you how hard it's going to be. There's a race to be run. There's a battle to be fought. There's work to be done. There's trials to be endured along the way when we follow him. And the reason why he does it is not because he worries that we're going to be surprised, like we're following him, and after like a year we go, oh my goodness, this turned out to be so much harder than I expected. I'm shocked. That isn't what he cares about, because no matter how hard you think it is, it's going to be harder, and you will be shocked. What he cares about is that you haven't counted the cost, and you're going to encounter the first trial and the test, and you're going to go, it's too hard, I'm turning around. John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on one of their first apostolic trips, and he thought it was going to be great. I'm, I'm traveling with Uncle Barnabas and, and Uncle Paul, or Saul at that time, and we're going to have so much fun. We're going to go eat Greek food in Cyprus, and then go up to Asia Minor and go see the Bereans and the Macedonians or whatever they were called. Anyway, a few weeks into this trip, it turns out it's really hard, man. And, he, and the scripture reports that he, he went back to his mommy. He abandoned them. And so many that start out of this journey with following Jesus like, 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 um, like newlyweds. Oh, marriage is going to be fantastic. I can't wait to be married. And then you have your first fight. And then you find out that your husband actually doesn't know where the towel hooks are. No matter how many times you show him, he cannot get the towel onto that hook. It's always on the floor. And, and you fight and you, and you grind and it's hard. And you, I just want to give up. And the best thing that you can tell somebody is marriage is going to cost you everything. It's going to be so hard. It's going to challenge you in the very depths of who you are because it is and then when the trials come, you're not surprised. Oh, I was waiting for this. I was expecting this. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't want us to be the seed that's sown into the soil that when it grows up in Luke chapter um, 8, it tells us that it's choked by the cares and the pleasures and the, and the riches of this life. And the reason why he doesn't want it is, he says, because that kind of plant produces no fruits. So we can still be the born-again believer that trusts in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and we can be that born-again believer that is fruitless through this life. And Jesus says, I want you to bear fruit, and much fruit, and much more fruit. And so he calls us counter-cost before we follow him. And for some, the danger of not counting it can be extraordinarily high. Many years ago, Lynn and I were flying through London. We went to stay with my brother who was squatting in a house in London, which means he was illegally occupying it. Him and his friends smoked magic mushrooms and did all sorts of weird stuff and lived like hippies. It was a lovely experience. We really enjoyed it. And um, anyway, one of his friends was actually a mate of mine from school, and they had been up somewhere in England smoking mushrooms. There were lots of mushrooms apparently in England, it turns out. And um, he, had, he had had quite a psychotic episode because he had been doing this, and uh, he, had, he was quite broken when we met with him. 
And so we sat in this, what was an excuse for a coffee shop, and we sat in, in um, some part of London, wherever it was, and I shared the gospel. Linda and I sat with him, and I shared the gospel with him. And, uh, he's, and, and I think the commitment he made was, I'll give it a try. I'll give it a try. And, um, and I remember giving him my leather-bound Bible, which I gave to gr- gritted teeth because it was my favorite Bible. And the fact that the dog has probably never read the thing makes it even worse. Within a few months, he had walked away from it, even less, had walked away from it. Now the problem is when I go to him to speak about Christ, he says this, I've tried it, it doesn't work. I've, I've, and the problem is when we don't count the cost, when we haven't set for what it is that we're stepping into, we think we're coming to Christ, we haven't even begun to follow him and allow his truth to break into our lives. And so Jesus wants us to follow him with eyes wide open, to know up front that we're going to get into a warfare against powers of darkness. And at times that warfare is going to be hard. The first kind of follower counts the cost. The second follower we meet in verses 59 uh, to 60 is um, delayed allegiance versus immediate obedience. To another he said, follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, some people think, man, Jesus, you're pretty harsh. I mean, the guy's dad has just died. He's lying in an open field. His body's beginning to decay, and Jesus says, leave him there. That's not what's going on here. Okay, if his dad had just died, he wouldn't have been in this meeting with Jesus. He wouldn't even be saying, I'm ready to follow you. He would have been in the act of burying the man. It's, a, it's an urgent and intent. They have to bury the person the same day. It's a profoundly important thing. He wouldn't have been somewhere else. His job would have been there, burying the father there and then. So the most likely explanation is that this is referring to the fact that he needs to be a dutiful son and remain around to look after his aging father until his father finally passes away. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, I'll follow you, just not right now. And uh, I've heard, as a pastor, I've heard that a million times in my lifetime. I've heard so many people come to me, Rob, as soon as I get over this hump, then I'll, I'll be there and I'll do that. As soon as I've, uh, I get my business off the ground, as soon as my kids are out of school, as soon as I've, I've got my marriage established, as soon as I've accomplished this or I've accomplished that, then I'll go with on an apostolic trip or then I will um, study the scriptures or then I'll be at that training time or then I'll lead a Connect Four group or whatever it is. Problem is, friends, is over that hump, guess what is always there? Another hump. And another hump, and another hump, and another hump. It's never a good time. It's like people when they come to me and they say, look, we want to have kids, but it's not a good time. We can't afford it. Let me tell you straight, you can never afford to have kids. <laughs> like, are you joking with me? Who can afford to have kids? Or, look, I, we, we want to get married, but we just can't afford to get married right now. No one can ever afford these things. It's never a good time for these things. You, we step into. And Jesus' response to him is not like, yeah, you know, he, he doesn't... Um, Say, that's, not, that's fine. You take your time. When you're ready, you, like so often we would do that. And I can see it's a different time. No problem. When you're ready, just I can see the call upon your life to lead a Connect Four group. I can see that you're a leader, but I know it's difficult right now. And there's a lot going on. So why don't we just set it aside for a while and, and you can leave it for another time. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives, he gives this command, follow me. It's a present imperative uh, tense, which means follow me now. It's, it's, this is something you have to do now and from now onwards. And um, you compare that reaction to when Jesus called Peter and John in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, we read this. He says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They're in the middle of their work. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Not and in two weeks later, they left their necks and followed him. Not in six months later or once they'd sorted this out. And immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. They didn't even fully realize who Jesus was yet. This was right at the beginning of their three years. They, they'd probably heard about Jesus. They'd probably heard of some of the miracles, some of the baptism and what John had said perhaps. And they, they thought, is there a possibility that this man could be the Messiah? They, they understood there was something. They, they hadn't yet come to the place of salvation, of faith in Jesus Christ as, uh, as the Messiah yet. But they understood enough that when he issued this invitation that they were to take it seriously and they responded radically. And friends, the enemy wants us to come to the place where when, when God calls us to do something, we, we weigh it up. 
Now let's let's make a list of the pros and cons of this decision. God says in that relationship, there's an ungodly relationship. Like this person that you're dating is not a believer. Well, let me put the pros and the cons down. Um, pro number one, she's good looking. Number two, she's really good looking. Number three, she doesn't hate me. Those are the pros. The cons are God says stop. Then stop it. Don't weigh it up. Be obedient to what God has called us to do. And what God is looking for in followers of Christ is people that will respond immediately. I think I've told you the story about Matthew when he was young. We were, um, we were out at a, in Venda, actually. It's an area in the northern part of South Africa. And uh, we had an LTT there. And Matthew was, I don't know, like five or six or something at the time. And he had a rugby ball. And some kid came and kept stealing his rugby ball from him. And I could see it out the corner of my eye because I was talking to somebody like this. And then the kid took the rugby ball and Matthew would take it back. And the kid would take it and he took it back. And then the kid took it one too many times. And I saw Matthew wind up. He pulled that big boy back like this. And I don't know where he was going to plant it, but he was going to plant it somewhere on the other kid. And mid-punch, like he's, he's going like into this guy. I said, Matthew, like this. And he stopped. Mid-air like this. And that's the response God wants from us as believers. That when he speaks, we say, yes, Lord. Not well, God, can I weigh this up? And of course, when the big decisions, we've got to make sure we're hearing God speak. I'm not talking about, like, if somebody comes to you and says something, you just do what they say. But when you know God has spoken, you do what He says and stop making excuses. Many years ago, I remember sitting on my balcony and coming to the realization, I mean, this is an amazing realization to come to, that God is God. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's the one before whom the mighty angels tremble, the one by, by whose word the whole universe is held together. John, one of the disciples that casually lay on the chest of Jesus, the Last Supper, saw him in his resurrected state and said he saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. His hair, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like that of the sun, shining in its full strength. And it doesn't say that John said, hey, what's up, big guy, and give him a high five. It says that he fell to his feet as though dead. This was the God that was calling me as I sat on my balcony that day, and I realized, God, I've got to stop putting you in a box. I've got to stop making you fit into my life, and I've got to fit into your call, what you have for me. And in verse 60, as Jesus confronts his disciple, this potential disciple, he says, but as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And when he called the other disciples, he says, I've called you to be fishers of men. And friends, that's what we're called to. That's the most profound calling we can have. Whatever it is that we do, we are called to be a people that live the gospel proclaim the gospel, and demonstrate the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're there for. In your office, in the playground, in your home, in your bedroom, it's the gospel through us that God wants to bring. That's what we are called continually to do. And there is no higher calling. The third one is the man who has divided allegiance versus the man who doesn't look back. Verse 61 and 62, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When we're reading about those disciples in Mark chapter 1, it goes on in verse 19 and 20 and says, And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. How's that for decisive action? They, uh, they don't go and sell everything, but they put everything behind them. This is no longer their priority. They've, they've taken a posture of priority where Jesus is number one in their lives. And I think it's, it's something like this. It's like, like there's things that God gives us to hold in our hands, but I'm not going to close my hands upon them. There are legitimate commitments that we have in our lives, but I'm not going to let those things take precedence over God. There's many good things He's given us. Work and family are two of those things. Those, those aren't from the devil, even though sometimes work might feel like that. Um, and maybe sometimes your family feels like that. Um, but, uh, but work and the family are, are gifts that God has given us. But even these gifts, um, we, can, we can become selfishly 
sinful about work and our families. We can um, exalt our careers above God. We can exalt our material desires that we get from, from the salaries we earn above God. We can exalt even our families above God. And any good thing that we put in front of God becomes a wicked thing in our life. I've mentioned a number of times this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And in this, it's an allegory, so it's not like a theological book uh, per se. But in it, there's a situation where this mother arrives on the, on the shores of heaven. She's taken a bus from hell. So like I say, it's an allegory. And uh, so she arrives on the shores of heaven like this, and her brother comes to meet her to take her to go towards the Lord. And she goes, where's my son Robert? And she go, and he goes, well, no, he's, he's so advanced that if he were to come now, you would die if you were, if, you know, in his presence kind of thing. So she goes, oh, well, I'm not going anywhere without Robert. And if Robert's not here to meet me, then I'm not, I'm not taking another step. And she went back and she sat on the bus until it went back to hell again. And the thing was that she was obsessively, uh, she had an obsessive love and an overarching love for her children that was greater than anything else that had become an, an idol in her life. And what Jesus is saying to us is that we cannot have divided allegiances. He has to be number one in every situation. And I've met many Christian couples who stopped coming to church because they've had children. This is the time for us to invest in our children, and, and it's difficult. Friends, I want to say, um, imagine standing before the Lord like this guy who says, Lord, I'll follow you just when Johnny's five. Do me like, like he's, we just had Johnny now. When he's five, then I'll come back and I'll do whatever you want. Jesus says at that point, um, that uh, he, that um, present imperative comes again. No, no, you follow me. It's not something that's negotiable. I'm sure many of you have had the situation where you're coming to a meeting, and there's, uh, you're going to come to a time of worship or a time of prayer or church, or whatever it is, or leadership meeting or something like that. And there's just something obstacles that get in your way to stop you coming. Has, has anybody ever had that before? Um, I can remember the one time we were leaving here from our place here in Dubai to come to a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. And I did one of those incredibly stupid things. I'd been to the back of my car to get something out the back, and I left the back door open like this. I had a wider close. It made my hands look full. I went back into the house. It was a bit late that we were leaving for the prayer meeting, so I jumped in the car. Um, I often don't wait for my wife because she's a, a few moments behind me, so our plan was to reverse the car out and, and hoot a few times to get her into the car so that we could leave on time. Anyway... As I reversed, I had forgotten that the back door was open. So the, as I reversed, it caught onto the wall and then onto my gate and ripped the gate off the hinges and bent the door a little bit like this as well, just before we leave it for prayer meeting. So I pull the car forward like this, go back and check. I have crunched the door, kind of half, kind of close it onto the thing like this, lift the gate up, put it back, reverse the car out like this. Linda comes up, what have you done? Oh, it's fine, it's no problem, just get in the car, we're going to go to the prayer meeting. We've got, we've got to put these things away. So she picks up the bicycle that's, that's in the front of the garage like this, and it spins around and pinches on her hand. So now my wife is crying in pain. My car's broken. The garage, it would be a good time to go, you know what? I think we're just going to stay home tonight, and somebody else will take care of the premium. But we, we got in the car. I got the caretaker to manually close the gate and drove up. And Mirabee had to stop because that alarm was going off. You know when your door's open? Beep, 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 beep. I got out and stood in Mirabee and gave that door a kick like a like this and kicked the clothes karate style and the beeping stopped and we came to the prayer meeting we parked the broken cars here and we encountered God in the most remarkable way and the reason why is because the enemy wasn't going to divide my allegiance there, there is there is like, like I, I didn't decide there and then that I was going to be at the prayer meeting I decided when I decided to follow Jesus that when I said yes I said yes it wasn't there isn't a halfway there's times honestly when the call of God has felt like there's times when it's amazing and wonderful, and there's times when it's so unbelievably hard, and I feel like God said to me, I didn't call you to give you a sense of self-actualization. I didn't call you so that you would have the best life that you could possibly have. I called you to walk in obedience to me, and the reason why it's a call is because at times it's hard, and the call needs to hold you to what I've called you to. And friends, I'm not talking about, like my situation, called into full-time ministry in my in my. Um, Bible, I've got a little note written next to this, verse 57, I've actually said that, I used to think this was those that were called to full-time ministry, but actually this is just about following Jesus, this is for every ordinary believer of Jesus Christ. Sometimes parents put their children ahead of the things of God, I, I cannot think of a worse thing to do for your children. My kids, I, I have this 
this absolute emphatic decision. My kids will never resent God or church because I'm in ministry. I, I don't expect them, I don't, I don't tell my kids how they're to worship. So you'll see if Ethan Reddy's upstairs and helping with King's kids. If he were in during worship, he'd be sitting there singing the songs. And uh, Pastor's kids should really be standing up and bouncing around and clapping and things like that. But it's his journey and he's not going to resent. But he also doesn't get to shape and determine how our lives um, are, um, are ordered in our following of God. I think I've told you before, even come out, we're back in South Africa now, and both Hannah and Ethan actually really would love to be back in South Africa. And they've told me that on a number of occasions. Why are we here? And the answer is because Jesus has called us to Dubai. And uh, we love living in Durban. I love, I love the church that I led there. I love the job I had before I led the church. These are things we do because we respond to the call of God. I do love living here in Dubai. And I love what God is doing. But I could just easily be somewhere else. And Ethan has um, one day, because I said to him, Jesus told us, come, he says, well, when do we go, when do we leave Dubai? Because then Jesus tells us to go. So he wandered off upstairs, and a few minutes later came back down and said, I spoke to Jesus, he said, it's fine, you can go home. <laughs> and so I pat him on his back, and I love him, and I explained to him again about being obedient to Christ, and uh, his moods, and his preferences, and his sports schedule do not determine how we live our lives in pursuit of God. There were Matthew, uh, as a young boy, was a very avid soccer player. And uh, he, but the problem with the soccer games were all played on a Sunday morning during church. And I said to him, sat him the one day, and I knew it was hard for him because he loved it. He loved being a part of a team. I watched him play soccer now when we're back. He just loves that team sports thing. And um, I said, boy, he gives us, God gives us six days a week. He says, do whatever you want. Play as much soccer as you want. Go see the movies. You can work as hard as you want. But this one day, I want you to set aside as, that your priority on this day is you gather together with the believers. And I said, that's Sunday. And so it's, I know it's tough, but that's the decision that we're going to make as a family. Do you understand that? And uh, if Matthew would go to all the practices but never play the game. And unless the game happened to be after church on a day, and it, we found it was a late game, then it would be great. And then after church, we'd go all together as a family and then play football. But we ordered our lives around this because we're not looking back. We're not hankering after something else. We're wanting to follow God. I want to read you a, a little extract from um, John Piper's book called Don't Waste Your Life. You can actually go get it on PDF for free if you, um, if you Google it. It's a great little book. And I've read this passage a number of times. We used to do vision nights. And um, I, would, um, I would read this before people joined the church. Because I think this is so profoundly true that we don't want to waste our lives by following the world's measure of what a successful life is versus understanding what God's measure of a successful life. And under the heading, these lives and deaths were no tragedy, John Piper writes, in April 2000, Ruby Eleison and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She fought it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed and a car went over a cliff and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted. These lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. And then under the heading, as he goes on, he says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play, soft, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it must be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ on the great day of judgment, 
look, Lord, see my shell. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream over against that I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Johnny, why don't you come up, buddy? Put the next slide up. We sang, and we are going to sing this song again, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No, I, I, I love this song. Like I've decided I'm not going to turn back. It doesn't matter what comes around the next corner, what dragon's waiting there, I'm not going to turn back. It doesn't matter what dark nights come against me, I'm not turning back. The cross before me, what Christ has done, his finished work, the promise of glory, the promise of acceptance and, and adoption as the Son, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And I think in this picture of baptism, that decision is most emphatically seen. We stand before witnesses in the water, waist deep, and we ask, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And we answer in the affirmative, yes, I do. And then the person in the baptism says, friend, then I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as you go under the water, you die. We died. Romans 6 says that we died with him on the cross. Paul says we died to these earthly things, these earthly passions. Dead. We come out again. Resurrected. It's like, friends, it's like and we come to Christ, we've died, God in heaven. And he sent us back again. And we get to live this life, our sense of smell heightened, our sense of hearing greater, our sense of seeing deeper, our sense of purpose clear. We're not just tickets in our pocket. decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I know some of you have been through some hard things. I was premier this morning just aware of silent pain that people have been enduring. Like, but Lord, it's so hard. So difficult to think that I've gone wrong. You don't know. You don't know what I've been through, what I'm going through. But he does. He'll carry us. Because the cross is still before us. The promises and the grace is still there for us in our lives. Take us on. But for God's sake the sake of the gospel and for your sake. Don't live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Don't live looking back over your shoulder the whole time. Should I go back? Should I keep following him? Settle it. I have decided I will follow Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? I don't want anything from you this morning. But Jesus wants everything. If you have prayed this prayer before and received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have repented of your sin and in faith received the free gift of forgiveness, you have been born again. Christ is your Savior. But too often, we can live with Christ as our Savior, but practically speaking, not allowing Him to be our Lord. And this morning is an invitation to say, get off my throne, whatever it is that isn't Jesus. I say, Jesus, would you come take your place? Would you come take up rulership and reign in my life? As the psalmist says, what is there in this earth that I desire more? Nothing is as precious to me as you. And this morning, Lord God, we, your people, we come before you. We consecrate ourselves afresh to you. We don't want to be wannabe followers, Lord God. We want to be those that have counted the cost. 
that are radically obedient and that don't look back. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew. And they made mistakes and they wandered and took detours. But at the end of their lives, they were found pursuing you. Five years after, ten years after, twenty years after. And if that's you this morning, why don't you just raise your hands as a, as a picture of surrender and say, Lord, I'm following you. I'm following you. I'm, there's no distractions, no detours. I'm following you, Lord. I don't know how to do it, but I, I'm deciding. I'm following you. I'm going to count the cost. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm coming, Lord. I'm coming. This morning, I've never met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He doesn't promise you a bed of roses. What He does promise you is this that He has paid for your sin and forgiveness is available. He wants you to be His child. And if you come to Him, you will be adopted into your family as a child of God. And He'll be with you every step of the way. He doesn't promise it'll be easy, but He promises that your life will matter for all eternity. We're going to sing this song now, friends, and I want you to sing it as a consecration, as a decision. And if you have not met Christ as your Lord and Savior, and in your heart now, I want you to pray and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I recognize that I've been separated from you because I've, I've lived in rebellion and an unbelief and a lack of faith. And I'm so grateful that you've made a way through your son and his death upon the cross. That when he died, by faith, I die with him. And my sins and the consequences of my sins are washed away. When he rose from the, be- the dead, I rose again. I rose with him as well into eternal life that I might become his child. And today, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it's a decision I make, Lord, with my eyes wide open, so aware of what you expect and call me to, wanting everything. I will follow you, Lord. The others won't go with me, yet I will go. No turning back.